Good morning, Journey. So I accidentally broke somebody's heart last week. I didn't mean to. Um, it wasn't my intention. But we're in a series. Uh, if you're brand new to our church, welcome. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors. We're in a series called Fixer Upper. Uh, we're studying the book of Nehemiah to learn how to rebuild the pieces of a broken life. And here's the question we've been asking the last few weeks at our church. When life doesn't meet your expectations, do you change your expectations and just settle for less than you thought life was going to be? Or do you change your life? Do you go to work to rebuild what's been broken? That's the question of this series, Fixer Upper. But Fixer Upper is also a very popular television show for some people in our world. It's got two kind of lead personalities, Chip and Joanna Gaines, who lead this show. The show is about them and the houses they fix up. And they're just awesome people. And someone came last week because they heard we were doing a series called Fixer Upper and they thought they were going to be here. Um, so they sat through the music and then I got up and started teaching long enough that they were convinced I wasn't going to sit down and they knew I wasn't them. So they left and on the way out, they told some of our greeters, hey, we thought Chip and Joanna Gaines was here. So if that was you, I'm sorry to have broken your heart. Um, you need to understand my wife, 52 Sundays a year, would rather come see them than me. So we, I get it. I get where you were. Um, but this is about a Bible series on the book of Nehemiah. We're trying to figure out how to fix up the broken parts of our life. But I have watched that show with Danielle. And here's what I think every time I watch that show, we watch them go in and, you know, buy this house for like a dollar, right? And then they put like $10 in it and then it's like a $150,000 house. And it's just beautiful. Like it's way better looking than ours. And every time we watch it, we're like, man, we, like we should do that. We should flip a house. But I have friends who have done that. We have people in the church who have done that. And here's what they all say. Um, it about kills you like to do it. Like if you really try to do that, it's going to about kill you. However, at the end, it's going to be like so beautiful. You're going to be so glad that you did it. And I think as we look at our lives spiritually, as we look at addressing broken things in our life, I think those two statements are true. Addressing broken things in your life spiritually and trying to rebuild them, it will about kill you. But the end result, if you do it, will be so beautiful as you become the person that Jesus has created you to be. I believe more than just being worth it. I actually believe Christians are commanded to fix up broken parts of their life so we can be who Jesus created us to be. And I'm learning that through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Nehemiah today. Um, pull the notes out of your, out of your bulletin so you can follow along this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, everything that I'm going to say is loaded onto our church app, Journey Church International in the App Store. All the sermon notes, all the scripture, you can follow along on your phone and then at the end push a button, email it to you so you can have it for later. If you want to go show it to someone, teach it, study it later. Um, but we're in the book of Nehemiah and here's what we're learning in Nehemiah. Last week, we started the book, and in Nehemiah chapter 1, we learned these spiritual truths. One, that Christians aren't supposed to settle for broken. You know, if you're in here today and you're a Christian, you're not supposed to settle for broken. If you're not a Christian, one, thank you for being here and trusting us to kind of hang out and learn what Christianity might be. Um, but if you're not a Christian who's broken, we believe that Jesus could maybe be the answer to your brokenness. But if you are a Christian... Jesus is the answer to your brokenness, and you're not supposed to remain broken. We also learned this from Nehemiah last week. It's okay not to be okay. Like if you're in here today and there's any area of your life that's not okay, that's okay. It's okay not to be okay, but God's design is not to leave you that way. It's not to leave you broken. And over the next month, we're going to study in the book of Nehemiah how to rebuild something that's broken. However, before we can teach you how to rebuild what's broken... Um, we have to focus on you and make sure you're ready. So today's focus 
is going to be on building a person that can rebuild a broken life. Today's focus is you. If any area of your life is broken, this message is for you and the focus is you. Today's focus, building a person that can rebuild a broken life. And here's what I want you to understand about last week, today, um, the next few Sundays at our church. This is not a Bible study just meant to teach you some cool Bible truth that you can pack away um, and go away, forget, or learn it only to reteach it. This is not just a Bible study that I'm teaching. Instead, this is a plan. Like this is an actual spiritual plan learned from the life of Nehemiah that if we apply to our life can actually help us rebuild an area that's broken. You say, can it help me rebuild a broken marriage? Yeah, it can. Can it help me rebuild broken relationships in my life? I believe that it can. Can it help me rebuild my broken emotional health and get me back up on my feet again? I believe that it can. Can it help me with my broken finances that are leaving me in so much stress? I believe that it can. Can, can it help me deal with trust in my life that's been violated and the broken trust that I've had to process. I believe that it can. Can it help me with my past that is so broken? Will this help me get over a broken past? I believe that it will. And as we continue in the book of Nehemiah, all we're going to do is open it and read it, but the plan is just going to kind of lay out before us. It's pretty easy to see if you read it with questions in your head of, okay, how do you fix something that's broken? You really don't even need someone to teach you. You just need someone to point out that, hey, here's how Nehemiah did it. How's that look in your life? So as we open the book of Nehemiah today, we see three more things that are going to help us. Last week we said, don't settle for broken. Last week we said, it's okay not to be okay, but God certainly doesn't want you to stay that way. Today, three more truths that help us become a person that can start rebuilding some broken area in our life. Number one, you got to be a person that leans on help. You have to be a person that leans on help. Nehemiah refused to settle for broken in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah, as he rolled into chapter 2, knew Jerusalem wasn't okay, but that God didn't design it to be that way. So Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 2.5, said, Can I go back to my hometown? Can I rebuild the city where my ancestors are from and where my ancestors are buried? Can I go back home and do this? We open today in Nehemiah chapter 2.6, and the king says, Yep, go ahead. And Nehemiah instantly needs to lean on others for help. Nehemiah 2.6, Nehemiah said, can I go? 2.5, then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, well, how long is it going to take? When do you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. That was the region of Persia that Israel, Syria, modern-day Jordan, modern-day Egypt were in. That's what it was called. He said, I need to go there. Can I have letters to the people who run that area? so they can provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and the cavalry with me. You know, you can't get through these four verses without realizing that Nehemiah could not have rebuilt Jerusalem's walls and Jerusalem's gates without leaning on people for help. He couldn't do it himself. He knew what, he, what was broken. He had a great vision to rebuild what was broken. He even had the energy in his heart to do it, but he knew he couldn't do it without help. There's a minimum of eight specific helpers in these four verses that we read about. Nehemiah said, this is what's broken. Here's how I want to fix it but I'm going to need a lot of help, the king and the queen. 
needed to let him go. The letter writers needed to write letters for him. There were probably more than one. The governors, there were probably more than one, had to give him safe passage. Asaph, who ran the royal forest, had to say, yeah, you can have some trees. And then probably the lumberjacks that worked for him had to cut down those trees to Nehemiah's specifications and get them ready. The army officers went with him, and they brought with them some cavalry members who rode to keep him safe. I mean, Nehemiah had this great vision to rebuild broken but he knew there was no way he could do it on his own. He needed help from dozens of people to even think about beginning the process of rebuilding what was broken. So who's your help? As you look at this broken area in your life that you know you have to address, who's your list of 10 that you've already signed on to help rebuild what's broken? You know, I have found a kind of a destructive pattern in my life in this area over the last 15 years. And here's the destructive pattern that I've realized. When things are going really good in life, I feel like I don't need anybody. And by the time I've realized how broken I am, I then realize I don't have anybody. And you find yourself kind of in no man's land. And I looked at that and I thought, Lord, basically, if you don't decide to intentionally live in community, if you don't decide to decide to intentionally put other people in your life, if you don't decide to intentionally take time for others to get to know them before you need them, when you don't think you can need them, your ego will get so big that it'll explode. And by the time you do think you need them, you won't have anyone who wants to help you anyway. So I thought, man, you've got to intentionally decide to live in community, in groups, um, in friendships with people. What that does is it doesn't let your ego get too big when things are going bad. And it doesn't let your depression get too low when things are going bad. But we have to realize when life breaks, we need help. You know, I was looking at the strategy and just reading through the book of Nehemiah. And I was looking at our church, honestly. And I thought, you know, there are some people in our church who won't be here as long as they're supposed to be here. There are some people in our church who will not experience healing at the level they're supposed to experience it because they will never engage with other people. Sunday will be their thing. And when sermons don't speak to them anymore and they don't like the worship for one reason or another, they're going to, to another church and they'll sit for an hour in that church and that church won't help them either because there's no sermon designed to cure brokenness. And there's no song designed to walk with you for a week. We need people, we need friendships. Nehemiah said, I've got this great project, but I'm gonna need some help. Who's your help? You know, at our church, we have serve groups that you can get involved in. Hundreds of people will come in our church today and leave our church, and no one will speak to them by their name because this church service isn't designed to do that. Like, this isn't a small group. This is a large group of people. But the people who are involved in our serve groups, they'll get here early. They'll drink coffee with friends who they know the name of their friends. They know their spouse. They know their kids. They, they carry on ongoing dialogue. They, they have friendships. Maybe you need to get in a serve group so Sunday can become not just about hearing a message, but meeting with people. Maybe you need to get in a connect group. You heard Pastor Brandon say they meet all over our city every morning, every evening, almost every night, men's, women's, couples, whatever. We've got groups you can be in. If you don't have help, you need to get in a group. And we've decided in 2017 we're going to implement some grow groups because we've had some people that want to go deeper, but they want to go deeper with other people. They want to study the Bible at a different level. They want to begin to follow Jesus at a different level. So we're shaping groups of people to do that. Why? Because life is done in groups. Because broken demands help from others. And because rarely is something that is totally broken rebuilt alone. And some of you, your greatest struggle during this series will not be what you learn. It will not be finding broken. It will be trying to rebuild broken all by yourself and realizing that's really, really hard. And maybe 
impossible. What did Nehemiah do next? After he leaned on others for help, number two, he took inventory, but without accusation. This is going to be a really key point when you understand what Nehemiah did and why he did what he did. He took inventory of what was broken, but without accusing anyone for why things were broken. Look at verses 11 through verse 15. For those of you who are OCD, I understand I skipped verse 10. I'm going to come back to it in two weeks and talk about it through the lens of who those guys are but I know that I missed it. Some of you won't be able to go on in the message unless I acknowledge that. You'll be stuck on verse 10. We'll come back to it. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I'd not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mouth to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. You know, Nehemiah, the first thing I realized as I read this, I stopped in verses 11 and 12. And I thought, man, what a great leader. What a, what a patient leader. Because Nehemiah was patient relationally with those who should have done more to fix what was broken. Like me, Nehemiah could have rode into town and begun to tell everyone why things were wrong and what they did to make it wrong. He had that right. Later, he would kind of produce a little more leadership of, of, of that type. And maybe last week, as you identified something that was broken in your life, you said, this is broken and it's their fault. You immediately began to accuse. You didn't take inventory. You just began to accuse. This is broken and it's their fault. And this is broken and it's their fault. And this is broken and it's their fault. And every brokenness was attached to an accusation of somewhere someone had failed you. Not Nehemiah. He took inventory first. He stayed three days in Jerusalem before he even began to talk to people about what was going on. He just was patient relationally with people who probably should have been held more accountable. And how he takes inventory shows us how to take inventory of the broken areas in our life so we can begin to understand how we can rebuild broken. So, well, what does he do? He does three things. And I think these three things can be turned into three questions that help us begin to rebuild brokenness. What are the inventory questions? Well, one, have you walked all the way around your Jerusalem? Like once you identify what's broken, so what's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the brokenness that you're addressing. Have you walked all the way around your Jerusalem? Nehemiah went to rebuild a broken city. And when he got in that city, he said, I need to just see, I need to see this from all the different angles. But I'm taking inventory without accusing anyone for anything. So he rode into the city, Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, 2,400 years ago when Nehemiah was alive, looked like this. He said he went out the valley gate in the lower southwestern corner of the city. He rode along the southern edge of the city past the dung gate. He then went up to the king's pool, which is the Gihon spring that you see there. And he tried to ride in the city through the horse gate. The horse gate was named the horse gate because that's gate big enough to ride your horse through. And he said, it wasn't big enough for me to ride my horse through. So I saw the rest of the walls. And then I went back to the valley gate and I just processed what I had seen. We see Nehemiah was taking inventory of two very specific things. And if you take inventory of the same things, I wonder how your brokenness would begin to frame up in your mind. Number one, Nehemiah wanted to know what gates weren't fulfilling their purpose. He needed to understand what gates weren't fulfilling their purpose. So what does a gate do? Gates really do two things. Gates keep things out that aren't supposed to be in. And gates let things in that aren't supposed to be out. They do two things. They, they keep out the bad, they let in the good. 
Some of the gates were made to keep out the bad. Some were made to let in the good, like the horse gate. Come on in so you can worship in the, t- in the t- tabernacle, in the temple. And they both were broken down. Let me ask you a question. Let me, let me pose a question specifically for parents. This doesn't apply to everyone, but one out of every three people at our church today is going to be under the age of 13, which means there's probably a lot of parents in the house. Parents, let me ask you a question. How good a job are you doing manning the gates of your child's life? What are some things that are dangerous to your children spiritually that are getting in? Are you managing the gates that are supposed to be keeping things out? What friends does your child have in their lives that are dangerous for them spiritually? And as a gatekeeper, you're going to have to say, you know, we're going to have to cut that one off. That's not going to lead in a good direction spiritually. Are you monitoring their social media and not only what they're posting, but what friends are commenting and how people are interacting with your children, your teenager, spiritually? Are you manning that gate well? How about the devices you can put on your televisions, your computers, your tablets, your phones to kind of keep out the garbage and the trash that, that the world would like to pour into your children? in through their eyes, into their brain, down into their hearts, and then it's stuck there forever into the future. Do you have filters? For those of you who are Christian parents trying to raise kids that love God and are protected spiritually, do you have a gate on that very dangerous thing? How about the books your kids are reading? How about the way their coaches and teammates coach them and make them feel about life? Are you aware of those things? Those are gates where we've got to, we've got to shut out the bad that can negatively influence our kids. But what about the gates that should be open? Is the church gate open in your house? I mean, is the church gate left open by you so that ministry can continue to flood into the life of your teenager, whether or not they're accepting it or not? You make sure the church gate is always open and ministry is getting in, or the youth group gate. Is the youth group gate open? Is that a gate that's always open in your life and your kids are always having access to student ministry stuff? What about the student ministry events that are going on? Are those gates open and accessible so that your kids can pass in and out through that? Last, last night, we had more than 100 teenagers from our student ministry there that were running around a corn maze and then out at a bonfire and eating all kinds of crazy food. And you know why? Of, of the thousands upon thousands of teenagers in our community last night that may have gotten caught up in some kind of sin, hopefully 100 didn't because their parents let them pass through the gate of a student ministry event. Hopefully there were a hundred kids last night who weren't drinking or smoking dope or having sex because they were at a youth group event. Now they might have been making out because sometimes kids do that at a youth group event. Like I hope not, but hopefully like they weren't doing the really bad stuff because they were at some kind of church event. Don't act like you never kissed a girl at church. I mean, it just happens. (laughs) When God moves, you never know. (laughs) I never did. I mean, I never kissed a girl at an event. Never on the bus on the way home from the event. Uh, what, about, what about the youth camp gate? Is youth camp something that's open and accessible to your children? Is the youth camp gate always open because you, you need that going into them? What about the mission trip gate with your students? Is that always open so that Jesus can pour into them that way? Listen, parents, I get it. It's hard. It's like being on call 24 hours a day. It's got to be harder to parent teenagers today than at any other time. I I did youth ministry for seven years. I know it's really difficult. But here's what I found out. When the parents' generation just begins to get just a little bit spiritually lazy, the child's generation gets spiritually lost. We've got to parent well and man the gates, keeping some open, shutting others. 
I did youth ministry for seven years, and the thing that I always struggled the most with as a youth pastor is when I would ask a parent, hey, where's your teenager? And they would say, oh, they don't want to come. I used to take that real personally. I used to feel like I wasn't doing something right. If they didn't want to come, it was because the music wasn't good enough, the messages wasn't, weren't good enough, the snacks weren't good enough, the games weren't good enough. Um, I felt like if they didn't want to come, then I had failed as a student pastor, and I felt that until I raised a teenager. And then I learned what else teenagers don't want to do. Teenagers don't want to go to church. Teenagers don't want to go to school. Teenagers don't want to do their homework. Teenagers don't want to turn off their phone at night. Teenagers don't want to ever get off the computer. Teenagers don't want to sometimes even take a bath. Um, teenagers don't want to clean their rooms. Like if we let the world be run based on the want to's and the not want to's of teenagers, like we're all gonna be in a lot of trouble. Can I get an amen? Like it's time that parents parent. And we man the spiritual gates that are going to help our kids have Jesus in them and help our kids have the world as far away from them as possible. Like, that's our job. But sometimes we get distracted. I was driving on, on Friday. My 15-year-old son didn't have school, so he said, Dad, can we go to Chick-fil-A for lunch? Because he asked seven days a week to go eat at Chick-fil-A at, at some point during the day. So I said, yeah, we can go. And he said, can I drive? Just got his permit. So I said, yeah, you can drive. So we're driving to Chick-fil-A, we're driving down Pryor Road, um, and I, I get a phone call that I've been waiting on for two days. It's going to take two or three minutes, but I've got to answer this phone call. So as I answer the phone call, in the two minutes that I'm on the phone, he missed getting over into the lane that he needed to get into to turn at the stoplight that he needed to turn at. You know, and I'm trying to talk on the phone and kind of do like driving sign language at the same time, like, you know, you there, but like I haven't taught him driving sign language. Like he didn't understand what I was saying. And by the time I hung up the phone, we missed our lane change. We missed the light. He'd almost caused an accident. And I was so frustrated that I made him pull over into a parking lot. I made him get out. I jumped in the driver's seat and I just, I wasn't very friendly to him. I'm embarrassed at how rude I was to him and the things I said about, him not being prepared to drive and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I went to Chick-fil-A, we went home, and I started feeling bad in my heart. And God basically showed me, he said, Christian, like, that was your fault. That wasn't his. Like, he's got a permit. Like, you got distracted, and he got in the wrong lane, and then you yelled at him. And I thought, you know what, you're right. So I went downstairs and said, Christian, I need to apologize to you. When, when you're driving, I can't take phone calls, I can't text. I got to be your eyes and ears. I let you down, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? for the way I treated you, and will you forgive me for getting distracted? And he's like, yeah, of course, Dad. Can we go to Chick-fil-A again? I was like, no, we're not, you know, not going to go for at least three days. Um, but you know what? Some of your teenagers, not all of them, some of your teenagers are in the wrong lane spiritually, and it's because you got distracted. Like you're the parent. It's because you got distracted. Maybe just for a minute but it's because you got distracted. You know what you need to do? You need to go to your teenager and say, I'm sorry. It was my job to get you where you could choose to make the right turns in life. And I got so busy at work, or I got so bogged down with this, or I got so into this hobby, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Some of you are in your 60s, and your 40-year-old children are in the wrong lane spiritually because you got distracted 30 years ago. Go talk to them. Man the gates. As long as your children are alive, man the gates. And then number three, notice the gaps. Nehemiah was looking for what gaps were in the wall. Listen, if you're married, folks, you've got to protect your evenings. You've got to protect your weekends so you can spend some time together. If you're single, 
You have to protect your heart. You've got to understand that your heart may reach out to the first thing that could be nice to it, but that might not be God's destined person for your life. If you're single, guard the gaps in your heart and and your romance and who you will attach your affection and your love to. All of us need to protect ourselves from unhealthy relationships, unhealthy habits, unhealthy hobbies, or the walls get weak. See, Nehemiah was looking for very specific things, and when he took inventory, he began to see what needed to be fixed, but he was taking inventory to learn how to rebuild, not to learn who to blame. And that's where we got to be careful. If we say, oh, Christian, I see all the gaps, and I understand what's going on with all the gates, and I even know whose fault it is, we're wrong there. We've got to take inventory without accusation, and once we take inventory, we got to talk to God, because here's the third thing Nehemiah teaches us today, private moments with God, should precede personal interaction with people. Private moments with God should precede personal interaction with people. One more verse today, verse 16, look at it. Nehemiah, after he got back from examining the wall, said, the officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing because I hadn't said anything to the Jews or the priests or the officials or the officials or any of the others who would be doing the work. Now, don't miss this. This is one of the biggest keys of the entire message. Nehemiah knew who should have been doing the work. He knew who to blame. He knew whose fault it was. Nehemiah also knew who would have to do the work to fix it, but he went to them last. Like he knew who was to blame and he knew who would have to put in the hard work, but he didn't go straight to them. Instead of talking to them about God, he began to talk to God about them. Let me say it this way. Instead of preaching to his friends, he began to pray for his friends. He began to pray that God would shape their hearts to be ready for his mission. But I think as he prayed, God shaped his heart to be ready to lead and love people. You see, you and I are supposed to spend time talking to God about others so God will change our hearts, not theirs. And the more you begin to pray for someone, the more you begin to be in a spiritual posture towards somebody, the less you even worry about them changing what's wrong with them, and the more you begin to see how God wants you to process who you are with them. Several years ago, I don't know if we got new furniture or if we were just moving or rearranging our bedroom, but we were doing some things and I got into Daniel's nightstand. I had to move it from where it was to someplace else and it was so heavy I could barely lift it because it was filled with books. So I pulled out all the books so that I could move it and as I got ready to put the books back, I found a very well-worn book that you could tell had been read over and over and over with notes and pages falling out and underlines and highlights and it was called The Power of a Praying Wife. And I went to Danielle and I said, what, like, what, what is, what's this? What's this all about? How come you've read this book so many times? And we were at a good place in our marriage then so she felt freedom to speak and she said, Christian, you used to be a terrible husband. She was like, when we first got married, I was 21, she was 19. She was like, you were so immature. You wanted to hang out with your friends more than us. Um, I didn't feel like once we got married, you pursued my heart like when we were dating. And she just kind of went on this list of stuff. And she said, I felt like instead of confronting you because you weren't ready for it, that God just wanted me to pray for you. So a mentor of mine gave me this book and said, just start praying for your husband. And she said, I've read it over and over and over, and I've just been praying for you for years. And I was like, man, well, your prayers must work because I'm like a great husband now, right? And she's like, well, it's still in my nightstand. Like when you find it in storage, <laughs> when you find it in storage, you'll know you've conquered it. But I'll never forget how my relationship changed when I knew Danielle was praying for me. And I said, well, why, after you started praying, why didn't you talk to me? And she said, I just felt like God, 
allowed me to see you with a lot of grace. And once I started praying for you, I just felt like God let me see you differently. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate as a church one of the great anniversaries of my life. October 23, 2009 was the day that God spoke to me to begin this church. Seven years ago, next Sunday, this all began as a dream. But Danielle wasn't ready. I knew she wasn't ready to quit our job, leave our house, sell our stuff, move everything, and move and start a church. I said, God, what am I going to do? I can't start a church without my wife. And he said, just start praying for her. And as I started praying for her, God started showing me maybe some of the fears that she had, that if I would mature as a husband and as a leader and as a Christian, those fears that would go away. So as I began to pray for her, God began to change me. And nine months later, she said, all right, let's go. Let's, let's do it. Praying for people changes you towards them. And what I found out about private moments with God is private moments with God, well, number one, they teach us about God, which is awesome. The more time you spend with God, the more you'll know God. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, said, conversations with God lead to encounters with God. So when we talk to God, we begin, we begin to know God. Secondly, they show us our hearts. Because as we begin to pray, well, God do this and them, and God do this and them, and God do this and them, God begins to show us our motives. He begins to show us our relationship. He begins to show us how we can interact better with people. So as we pray for others in private moments, God shows us our heart. And then number three, he shows us how to love people. He speaks to us about what's needed for them, and usually it's needed from you. So God says, boy, you're praying for them for this, and you know, I bet if you would do this, they would get there. God begins to show you how to love people like God loves them. You see, for Nehemiah, the wall was just going to be a public face of what his private faith had already prayed into existence. As Nehemiah rode around that broken city, he didn't see the city as broken. He saw it as rebuilt. He wasn't sure how he was going to get there, but he knew if he would take time talking to God, that God would reveal to him how all of that was going to work. And throughout the entire book, Nehemiah credited God for taking care of preparing things to be rebuilt. Every time something positive happened, Nehemiah would say, it was because God did this, because I asked God for this, because I talked to God about this, Every positive thing was credited to God for taking care of things to prepare them. Like we saw in the last part of verse 8 today. Nehemiah says, I asked the king for all these things. I couldn't start without help. And he said, and because of the gracious hand of my God, the king granted my request. You see, rebuilding for Nehemiah and for you will be a spiritual thing first more than anything. Rebuilding any broken thing in life has to start at the spiritual level talking to God. And as it builds up, some people might see more than the spiritual, but you'll always go back to the spiritual and say it was because of that that God did this. And I'd love to challenge you to begin to enter into the spiritual this week. Say, how do I do that? Well, the book of Nehemiah is known for what I call its text message prayers. It's known for very short snippets of communication between Nehemiah and God that that are sometimes unspoken. Sometimes it's a sentence. Sometimes it's a word. Sometimes it's a deep breath. But Nehemiah said, I, I developed this ongoing communication with God. Here's what it looks like in Nehemiah 2, 4, and 5, if you had your Bible open. Nehemiah says, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered. There's a short prayer that's so short, we don't even read what he said, we just know that he connected with God real quickly. It was almost as if he said, I asked the king for something, and the king said, what do you want? 
And he said, so I prayed. I think it looked like this. Hey, King, I need some. King said, what do you want? I think he went like this. Lord, help me. And then he told him. It was just a quick one sentence, not on my knees, not even my eyes closed. We're not holding hands around the table. We're not blessing food. It was just like Nehemiah said, if this thing's going to happen, God's going to have to do it. And he began to let his thoughts become prayers. Just every thought, instead of thinking, he started praying. So I want to give you three prayers for this week that are built around the steps of this message. I want to challenge you to pray this week, this prayer, God, show me who can help me. Instead of hearing that you have to lean on people and thinking, I don't know who I'm going to lean on, don't have that thought. Instead, pray the prayer, God, show me who can help me. See how you turn a thought into a prayer? I got to lean on people who can help No, God, show me who can help me. Bring God into that process. Secondly, pray this prayer, God, show me clearly what's broken. Learn how to walk around your Jerusalem. If you don't know how to, begin to pray. God, show me what's broken. I, I feel what's broken, but I don't know why. Help me understand what's broken without blaming anyone else. Help me take inventory of what's broken. Then number three, God, help us rebuild together. If there's anyone that needs to be brought into the process or there's any restoration, if there's more people than you engaged in your brokenness, begin to pray for us, not just them. And I think if we'll begin to add those three sentences to the restoration prayer I taught you last week. I've heard from dozens of people in our church who every day have prayed the restoration prayer I gave you to pray last week. I saw one of our people posted on Facebook. They saw a friend post some struggle that they were having and they responded on Facebook and said, my pastor gave us this prayer that I've been praying every day. Why don't you start praying this prayer too? Just two simple sentences and we add these three things to it. Listen to how we begin to bring God into brokenness. God... Remember that you said, if I draw near to you, that you will draw near to me. I will draw near to you every day with new commitments and new consistency. And I ask that you would give me life to the fullest as my life connects with you on a new level. God, show me who can help me. God, show me what's broken. God, help us rebuild together. Can we close our time today with this prayer? Would you just bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And